0: Understanding the full extent of corruption in the United States government is something even legal scholars struggle with. But in the 1980s and early 90s, Herculean efforts were made in the days before the internet to follow leads and conduct investigative journalism on nefarious activity by agencies such as the CIA by reporters including Gary Webb and Danny Casolaro. Like Webb, however, Casolaro met an untimely end and was found dead in his hotel room under suspicious circumstances. The work he did on the octopus, what we would call the deep state today, highlights a web of high-level people involving illegal espionage, money laundering, drugs, and gun running that persist in operating together in America today.
1: Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. The Military-Industrial Complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of
0: other
2: people.
3: I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time to the with it. It's no challenge! I'm to do it. Adam, do you want to talk about your recent experience?
0: Yeah, I I don't want to get too specific, but uh, you guys know who you are that I hung out with this weekend. Uh, Great time. I wish I could say more. Um, I got a cold because of it, but for once I kind of pushed myself to the limit in in some very extreme situations, and uh, I made it out alive, so we're doing all right there. Yeah,
2: Did you get some antibiotics.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna need them Dan. It's some like mani- uh,
2: Did you get some antivirals, too <sighs> yeah.
0: Let me just say this. Way. Let me let just me just it. let me just say this When a woman <laughs> gives it away for free it has no value. All right And so I'm not like saying yeah, I got probably anything, come but with something extra on when the top. you go to a place that gives it away the look for free um, <laughs> It's not very erotic so I just wanted to put that out there to Mainly the guys. I think women understand this actually, although some of them don't. If you watch some of the uh, latest twerking videos, which I don't, I don't quite understand. But um,
1: there is like was- a species of like, I'm the cool girl. Like, teehee, Let's go to the strip club. They have. Like you know, we can get buffalo wings. It's two a.m. They're open. Let's go. Let's go.
0: That's a that's a perennial question that has never
1: been answered to me satisfactorily. Like, Why do women curious, want to go? Bi- to they're like bi curious. No, 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 no. Like, Except yeah, them piercing, yeah. like art hoe. Yeah, does.
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, fundamentally, women are you know typically kind of like almost ready for that for the most part. So then they're like, oh, let's go to the strip club. And it's just totally about the food and not about me wanting to explore myself in 19. <laughs> it's about the food.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, the food. Let me just say this, too. The um,
1: eating you.
0: Depending on how attractive and how many attractive women are in the local strip club metropolitan area, <laughs> uh these girls ain't making much, uh, so where I was at, they got, a, they had to pay stage fees. Apparently, something I'm, you know, I'm new to this. I yeah, don't yeah know they, any they of
1: this, that's but pretty standard almost everywhere. They have yeah, to pay stage so fee. and that's, like, that's, that's like one of the California Uber, the Uber law thing about like contractors versus employees. Oh, i not going to hit like them too. Strippers are supposed to be one of the main beneficiaries. Um, now, Adam.
0: I don't know. Did you did you tip this poor girl? No, I I didn't I didn't do anything. I I basically uh, I gave her my chair when she was trying to talk to the guy next to me, and I was like, uh, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I specifically did not sit in that chair again. But um...
3: I, I have a question. You guys think? Um, I just kind of found out about this stuff. Do you think that hard seltzer
0: is gay? Oh, you mean like White Claw or something?
1: Oh no. White claws. I thought you were talking about Heart Cellar. Like the uh, the sixty uh uh sixty whatever immigration act. And was like, that, you know, that, that was well, definitely well worn territory here, but you know. No hard seltzer is uh hard seltzer is good. It's low carb, it's paleo. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I've been drinking it. Uh I wouldn't have admitted that had you said it was gay. Right. But I've course. been drinking
0: it lately and it's
2: Well, at least you're honest right? about that.
0: <laughs> you know, Clownish, conditionally that's
1: honest, but right. right. yeah, that's something. Generation Spoiler Maker. What's L- that? A shot. Yeah, you just go up to the bar, you're like on a shot. Yeah, I'm, heard that, I'm sure they never heard that one before.
0: I'm, I'm really glad I'm not your bartender.
2: Like that sounds really cringe. It sounds like something from the from 2003. Like you're in the you're in the limp you know like the limp biscuit outfit, and you walk up like on a hanger, bro. Clawing a shot, bro. Oh, oh, speaking you know, of Limp you know, Biscuit, you know. did
3: you guys did you guys see that that John Travolta movie directed by the guy from Limp Biscuit?
1: Oh yeah, where he plays a retard.
3: <laughs> yeah, he plays he plays a um a mentally handicapped individual, and he uh basically <laughs> is like a super fan of this actor, and then some violent stuff happens.
1: Huh. Yeah, I mean I only saw the red letter media uh, thing about it, but it, it looked intriguing.
2: Why is it that every now and then a Hollywood actor basically sits down and says, "I want to play a retarded person"? I think the what does give them that roles,
0: and they're like, "I haven't had a good movie in a long time. I think I'm desperate enough to do this type of thing." I mean, perhaps you know, chops. Like like
2: Claire Danes, Claire Dane, Danes. What, what I don't know her name. She did that movie where she basically played Temple Grandin, and oh. it was just it was so cringe. I wanted, I, I wanted to die. I, I mean, I, mean, I, I was seriously itself. looking at the pistol in my hand and, you know, thinking about well, putting there, it to my head. It doesn't have to be. There bad, was but... that,
3: back in the back in the 90s, there was that sketch show, uh, Mr. Show, mm. which had the uh, odious Jew, David Cross, on it, who back then, I will admit, was funny. Oh,
1: come uh, on. He's good. Uh, he's the good ones. Like,
3: watch watch any set of his actual stand-up, and it's,
1: you won't feel the same way. Oh, I, why why Mr. I, show. No. Mr. Show. Mr. Was,
3: Show was brilliant. And they had is, one no. bit where it was, they're riffing on this. I think I am Sam had just come out where Sean Penn plays a mentally defective man. And, uh, <laughs> what they did for the bit was like, the guy is a method actor, right? So in order, so a method actor trying to become, you know, retarded, uh, involved him getting a lobotomy. And like, then the movie was a huge hit, and oh, he, God. you know, was able to build his new mansion. But he was, you know, permanently lobotomized.
0: Right.
2: Mm. What's, matter- what's the worst retard movie you've ever seen? I think uh, Radio with Cuba Gooden Jr. Oh shit, that was <laughs> so bad.
1: Definitely, that's pretty bad. But like,
3: I can tell you, the best retard movie I've ever seen
2: was
1: the <laughs> film The Rover,
3: which I highly recommend.
1: Uh, I didn't realize that, that involved a uh, a person of specialty.
3: It's not. He's not overtly uh, the the twi- Robert Pattinson, the the Twilight guy. He plays a uh, a defective, and he's not the main character. Guy Guy Pierce is the main character. But I, it's... I love
2: that that's your euphemism. Nick. <laughs> he has many. <laughs> he, he plays a defective.
3: <laughs> well, you know, to be quite <laughs> honest, we had a we had a guest on here. This is the one time this ever happened. We, we had a guest on here, and it was a good show. It was an, it was a nice guy, but he did in fact reprimand me for this I, before the show. Yeah, I, I have I have.
1: Sympathy, I have a lot of sympathy for that. Yeah. yeah like it, You're a real fucking I asshole. Do, I do,
3: too. It, that's you know, why it, I, I thought about it.
1: Anyone, obviously. Like, it, like, you know, there's there's like a, it's a euphemism treadmill. Like, things that, things that need a word to refer to them. And when people use it pejoratively, it then, like, it toxicifies it right. for the entire thing. But, I mean, that's just an unavoidable... Like somebody's going to use whatever as a pejorative.
0: I think calling and, an actual mentally handicapped person that word is is really not what we're doing. We're actually talking about people who could do better if they tried, and that's usually I, for me the qualifications. Like this person is just being a, a, an idiot, and they they should know better kind of thing. And that's when it's it's applicable in my book when somebody is not, That's not what you're talking about with the movies per se, but when you're actually trying to insult somebody. You wouldn't call somebody Most who's movies, you know, they really born that way. Back. It's not their fault, kind of thing. So, but you would call somebody who who should be able to do better that yeah, as an insult, in, in my opinion. You mean, you mean like Sean Penn? <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. I don't you know, know Sean
2: Penn's pretty based. He like beat the shit out of a reporter in front of his house one time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, cool. You guys remember
0: that? Based. I'd never heard Even that. Oh, Al- since Oh yeah, Alec I know. Baldwin Baldwin I know. I know Alec Baldwin, Baldwin did bag. something like that. <laughs> Chewed out well, his. Then daughter. he lost.
2: Then he lost his MSNBC show. Like he had a whole show planned for a whole season, and this is in 2011, twenty eleven, twenty twenty twelve, maybe, and uh, he lost his show. They canceled the show before it even aired because he called a reporter a fag.
3: Now, yeah. if you guys didn't know, this we are actually an educational history podcast, and <clears throat> recently. Uh, someone had brought up an idea for something I hadn't thought about in a very long
2: time.
3: Uh, was it you Hans who had this had someone bring this up to you? I, I forget how this went down.
2: Yeah. Um, this is actually a longtime friend of the show, a uh, longtime friend in general, uh, mr. Ryan landry. he uh, he posted an article in a uh, in the chat that we're all in. and it was a uh, a link to um, activist post i think i'd maybe been to activist post once or twice it's a lot like other sites we're actually going to reference here like muck rock um you know alternet truth out they all kind of have sign of the times they all have that same field kind of woke center-left analysis of uh conspiracy theories basically and he uh he, he you know linked this article by aaron kessel called octopus promise the, the conspiracy against Inslaw Software and the murders to cover up a scandal bigger than Watergate. Um, and this is something that I had heard of very briefly. And the context that I heard of it was way back when, uh, about six, let's, if we wind the clock back about six years, uh, Edward Snowden is actively leaking and giving interviews regarding. Uh, a vast array of NSA, DOD, and uh, widespread U.S. intelligence technologies that are being uh, deployed against the American public for various reasons. Um, The biggest piece of technology, and probably the most prolific one, uh, was this piece of technology called PRISM. Uh, and to basically boil down what PRISM was. It was a means of um, going to telecommunications companies, going to ISPs, and going to social media companies, and other internet-based companies, e-commerce sites, and asking for backdoors, asking for them to stream data, asking for a variety of services uh, on the part of the US government, to uh, basically obtain data on American citizens en masse bulk collection. Uh, the idea was that we're not actually violating anyone's Fourth Amendment rights because we're not targeting anyone. We're just simply taking everything. And then we're going to parse through it later. And then, you know, we this is the whole story of the FISA court. If we actually need to go after someone, we would actually develop a profile, go to the FISA court, ask for a warrant, then put a name to the profile, then go after the person. Um, turns out that none of that was really happening Happening is the way it should have been. And the FISA court had like a 98 percent, 97, 98 percent um, approval of uh, warrants. It was basically a rubber stamp court uh, or kangaroo court is probably a more apt American phrase to uh, to describe it. But I had heard in, in many articles that talked about the history of mass uh, surveillance and uh, you know privacy concerns inside the United States, there were... Um, I think it was uh, the Talos division of uh, the NSA who uh, were involved in uh, stealing uh, Cisco routers and Cisco uh, networking devices on route locations and bugging them. Um, I heard various stories about the Tailored Access uh, Operations or TAO Group also out of the NSA. Uh, Various stories about outfits out of the CIA, uh, other outfits out of the DOD that were basically involved in various efforts over the course of 30 years to infiltrate American technology companies, to plant back doors, and to try and collect as much data as they could on every American possible. One of the most infamous cases of this was something called the clipper chip, and that was proposed in the '90s, late 90s, around the time of the Telecommunications Act. Um, now, had that gone through as it was intended, we would have lived in a very, very different world I think today where It would have been a matter of U.S. law that every single networked electronic device has a small uh, uh, mechanical electronic component that is there to basically act as a permanent backdoor mounted on the hardware and BIOS of uh, the machine. Um, But out of all that noise, I remember hearing someone or a few people mention this Promise business um, so when we say Promise, it's an acronym, P R O M I S, and it basically Promise was a project management information system, uh, incredibly vague and doesn't really mean anything because it was probably one of the first of its kind, if not one of the real first um, in production. It was what we would use in the tech world uh, in production project management systems. Uh, it was developed specifically for this uh, kind of growing market that we'd call NCIC uh, or NIC, uh, NCIC type. And this basically was uh, the, the you know national criminal databases. Uh, and the idea was that, okay, um, prosecutors and litigators working for the U.S. government, specifically for the attorney general's office or the DOJ, um, need a means of tracking various elements of a case and associating those with financial records, associating those with bank transactions, um, receipts, uh, all kinds of, let's say, metadata about a person or a person's transactions over a period of time or between people and so on. Uh, now, all this was being done. Uh, by hand, or there were very, very, very rudimentary flat file um, computational devices at the time that would have been utilized for such a purpose. Um, but as the 80s really took off, um, there were a lot of advancements that had been made in the late 70s that were suddenly becoming commercialized. Um, electronic databases were becoming much more commercialized, much more compact much more useful and could actually be interfaced with um with a a digital monitor let's say before you had um various systems that were actually utilized heavily by the nsa uh, magnetic tape storing they had um, some electronic databases although they functioned in a very different way it was more of an electromechanical interface rather than a digital one Um, the old punch card system that was famous in the Vietnam era.
0: Well, let me ask a question as the audience here. So all of this is basically 1980s tech level stuff. You have kind of files on a local computer, but the NSA is really in charge of signal intercepts. And so without the internet, and perhaps they have a way to round that because all the police computers are talking to the police cars or something, how are they actually intercepting this information, because the, the big deal about this was that they backdoored all these programs and then tried to sell it to all the different municipalities and even countries around the world. Right. Well, okay. I,
3: I, let me jump in here actually. So that we don't know exactly what the big deal is per se, because that, that is one aspect of it. But I'll, let me give you my experience with this, because I, I think it's best to comment this from a broad perspective because it's, this is, definitely a labyrinth because what it what it really is is it encompasses basically all of the deep politics scandals of the 1980s everything from the bcci to iran contra october surprise to even the pan am flight that uh, blew up or crashed in Lockerbie, scotland uh, to the mca i mean the reagan administration rex 84 ali north i mean it, the list goes on because what it is is and this is how I stumbled on it, because as some of us is probably aware, I, I have absolutely no knowledge. I am a, um, a defect, a mental defective, when it comes to understanding of technology. I, I read James Bamford stuff, and I have very primitive understanding of how the NSA operates in terms of the on the actual technical side. But my experience came from I used to be I used to research a lot about uh, journalists who had unfortunate things happen to them, and I remember many years ago. I was in Eugene, Oregon at a uh, beer festival and it was like a, a bizarre snow day. And I was, I was just, for some reason I was at this beer festival. I'm not a huge beer drinker, but, uh, I went to this thing. Someone asked me to go and I had nothing else to do. And at this beer festival, there was this, like, they had this small book sale going on and one of the tables. Cables had a bunch of books from the publisher, which some people may be aware of, uh, Trine Day. Now, Trine Day publishes some stuff that's maybe a little sensationalist, but uh, a lot of the stuff they publish is really solid research that I've used extensively on the program before. Uh, it's definitely, you would say, a conspiracy publication. And they were selling these books for like $5. They were not even used. Uh, they were just trying to get rid of them. So I bought a bunch of them. And one of them I picked up. Uh, knowing just a little bit about it, it had to do with the death of a journalist named Danny Casalero, who I became aware of after reading on the uh, Gary Webb affair. Another journalist who met an untimely end around the same time period, dealing with a very similar nexus of events in the case involving Iran Contra. And Danny Casalero's death was something of a mystery at the time uh, that it happened. I mean, it, people didn't really understand what he was researching, and he was, of course, ruled a suicide. He was. This was in 1991 that he died um, in August of 1991. He was found in a motel room in West Virginia. He had, like, 12 cuts on his wrists, or his arms, rather. And it really follows a lot of the typical methodology of this kind of thing. It's, you know... Uh, Tampered crime scene, tampered evidence, uh, violation of standard operating procedure with respect to uh, the handling of and processing of the body. It was, he was body was embalmed without the consent or knowledge of his uh, immediate relatives. Uh, there were some other things that didn't show up until later after the, they demanded an autopsy. And they found, uh, though the police at the time denied that there were any signs of struggle, they found things such as bruises on his head and uh, elsewhere on his body, as well as. Uh, missing
0: fingertips, and well, what I understand was, was the biggest red flag. And I'm I'm not a you know a doctor, but or a forensic uh, expert for that matter. But what I read was that he had cut both of his arms. The official story goes to the point where his tendons were severed. Now you could that, do maybe cracking. one arm with uh, with your other arm, but if you've now cut your left arm and you're going to go pick up the razor blade to do the right, your tendons are cut to the point where you can't grip that razor. And so unless you're going to use your teeth or something, which seems pretty unlikely. Uh, yeah, this was the, this the was opposite
1: the, of hesitation marks, which is why you would see like multiple cuts multiple on your cuts, arms exactly. in a suicide. Yeah. yeah.
3: And furthermore, his family attested, including his brother, who was a uh, physician, uh, testified to the fact that he hated blood. He refused to get his uh, blood drawn. even. Uh, And it, I mean, it's just like, it's one of those things where we we get what's going on here, guy. I mean, you're working on a highly sensitive... Well, do you
0: think that was on purpose? Political... Sort of, that was a message some people theorize about, you know, making the... The normal, you know, mass public assume that what the police are telling them is correct, but then there's this sort of hidden messaging to the people that are actually more of yeah, the I, likely I, target of the deep state. It's like, it's weird. Before,
1: case of autoerotic asphyxiation. Why does this yeah, keep happening? Yeah, I've
3: said that before with respect to Gary Webb. I mean, there, there's a lot of ways that you can kill people, um, you know, in theory, that are a lot cleaner than you know, blowing their head off. You know, shooting them twice in the head
0: with a shotgun and saying it was a suicide. I mean how come these people just don't disappear? I mean, is that is that too obvious? It's not a suicide or it's something no, difficult.
1: I, it's I, I do agree slightly.
3: that it's it's uh, violent deaths like that are uh, because they, they don't really fear any consequences from what is uh, erroneously referred to as the public. Right. Or you know, <laughs> It, right. Yeah. It, this isn't the last time. It, the this isn't something that, <laughs> that they're concerned about. They're yeah. not like covering up a, a simple political hit job is not difficult for for the system. I mean, that's that they have no trouble doing this. There's no one will be able to find a single case where the government carries out a domestic assassination and they're held accountable for this. I mean, and it, this gets, I guess, into more of the subject, which is the fact that the investigation he was conducting uh, implicated above all else, the justice department. And I mean, (laughs) you you know, uh, this was, it wasn't exactly obvious at the time. I mean, the book, by the way, I I failed to mention this The book that I picked up was a book by uh, Sherry Seymour called the last circle. And it was her picking up the trails of the investigation that he had conducted. And, I don't really—I mean, I will throw in now, I suppose, the speculations I do have about Danny Casolaro. Uh, He lived in Fairfax, Virginia, on a five-acre plot of land, okay? This is not too far from Langley, okay? He uh, also—there was an incident that happened at his funeral where— Someone in some it was a, a Negro, actually, in full military regalia with a, a plainclothes, you know, like G-man next to him who came up to the coffin and put some kind of metal on the coffin. And the family asked around and they they had no idea who this person was. And I don't know. I will just say, uh, you know, investigative journalists is uh, a commonly used cover for assets. Of the company, uh, I'm not going to say one way or the other. What necessarily I believe, I just want to throw that possibility out there. And going off of that, uh, she, she Sherry Seymour caught up with his wh- wh- work he was doing, and it was called the oct- the thing that he was chasing after. He called the octopus. Okay, and she got. got interested in it because she was operating as a a reporter in uh, uh, Mariposa, which is near Yosemite in California, and she was noticing uh, a lot of the drug trafficking that was taking place at the time. You know, you had these small single-engine planes flying into these small central California towns, uh, and a lot of drugs were moving through there. This was, I mean, Gary Webb was out in the Bay area, but he was also taking a story on more on the coast of what was happening in Los Angeles. But these kinds of things were happening at the time, because this was during the Iran Contra affair, which most people have a pretty superficial knowledge of. I regret that I was, we did an episode on that. I was not on that. And uh, maybe sometime we will do a redux of that. Cause I have a lot to say about that, but th- this is kind of the problem we have covering this subject is you could do entire, you know, two or three hour programs on things like the iron Country on BCCI on the October surprise, even, I mean, but she, one way or the other ended up interested in this and she worked on it for many years and followed the trails that he was, he was working on himself. And, uh, but it involves other weird shit. Like there's this Indian reservation in Southern California called the, uh, Cabazon Indian reservation. And this was a, Indian reservation that was doing the typical red man stuff of setting up a casino that came to have a lot of money, but the thing about that was the seed money for it came from syndicate uh, people, and of course that involves uh, the spooks as well. It always does. As yeah, this CIA front company called Wacken Hut that was operating there doing uh, various shady shit, all kinds of shady shit. Was taking they place. still they actually they just changed their name. Well,
2: there's uh there's a couple of Wackenhut employees that actually show up in the, the promise scandal in the base. There were a few, um, one in particular who we'll get into later, but um, was sort of a whiz kid <clears throat> that was employed by Wackenhut and uh, he was asked to help uh, refactor parts of uh, the, the core promise software this to integrate tool? to integrate with other uh, database tracking software here, that the yeah, DOJ. And the other,
1: here, here's, my, here's my problem with this whole thing. And it, it's like a legit problem on my part because I can't really seem to understand what is meant by this like what promise is described as seems like basically uh like 80s vintage customer relationship management software which uh go go ahead and like google customer relationship management software and just see your inbox flooded with every variety of spam and consultants pointing at consultants pointing at consultants This stuff is a nightmare to configure. It's in no way a sort of magic bullet. It all depends very heavily on a lot of uh, very manual configuration to ingest whatever data sources it's pointed at and to coalesce it in the right way and to make it be usable for whatever task is at hand. That's why, you know, if you are... Some random Fortune 500 company. One of the standard kind of IT failure modes is: Oh gosh, we had these nice salespeople come in from IBM, and they're telling us how they have this software where we can understand all of our customers and, you know, everything that we know about them and make it visible to all of our salespeople and tell them what products they need and track our cash flow associated with each one and when we have to deliver our products. And it'll just be great. And then two billion dollars later, it's like, yeah, well, we never quite got that hooked up properly. So okay, let's there's see. where we are. Where, where, and the, the idea of like on, stealing like stealing that software is like facially ludicrous.
0: But the, if well, that's, this is the okay, day
1: that, no that was bad. Months,
3: first of all they it's they they absolutely did steal the software in the sense that the if uh, a, a federal judge did, in fact, find... It was developed by a firm called Isla. Inslaw, yeah. and one of the the, the main programmers, his name is uh, Williamson, I think it was. Uh, I've read somewhere that he was a former NSA employee. I don't know if this is true or not. But well, that case has been going on for shit, like, almost 30 years. Yeah. I mean... It, this is is as of a couple years ago like this is still being litigated cuz the the government has never paid the justice department in particular has never paid yeah
1: this litigation seems like you it like we got the floppies versus we installed it we set it up we configured it and then we didn't pay the guy
3: well, they like, were paying, different and then they stopped,
1: situations
3: they were paying and then they stopped paying and and the reasons that they're they stopped paying probably had to do with some very petty uh, personal connections that were going on, uh, particularly with Edwin Meese, uh, who was at DOJ at the time. So, I don't really know, but what I can, let me let me just add a few things. I, I would say that I, I don't know how valuable, I, I will remain agnostic on how valuable the software actually was. What I can say, though, is it was part and parcel of a lot of operations that were going on at the time maybe it wasn't something that was actually valuable but got foreign governments and were coerced for whatever reason to buy it and install it uh you know i i don't know but it was it was following the same trail that was happening with regards to the drug bank and the weapons trafficking and the, the drug trafficking and it was it was part and parcel of this and it people who were investigating this died and they were stumbling upon the other aspects of the deep politics of the of the 80s, basically.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is what's unsatisfying because there's these kind of like gaping holes in a lot of the story where a lot of the ways that it's traditionally relayed in all these like tertiary sources that all cite each other, uh they all seem to kind of gloss over they they like they point out this network i mean hans was saying before the show started that this this is a lot more interesting as a way to kind of examine the network of people involved than to actually lay out a concrete thesis of what specifically happened because there's a lot of missing pieces to be honest well,
2: in, of course, let's let's just dive in really quick to what we do know so i, I want to give some extra background before we and we will talk about the network. The network is hundred percent much more interesting in its relation to things that Nick is talking about, is 100% much more interesting than a case of stolen potentially stolen software and basically a contract dispute between a, a defense or a, uh, a government contractor and the DOJ. is basically what this boils down to. Uh, and through various mechanisms related to this network has still never been fully litigated, never been fully settled. But the network surrounding this that are related to aspects of it is much more interesting. Um, so the basic level, um, Promise was sort of actually – at its. there was a core Promise uh, public domain software that was, um, I believe, written in COBOL. And which actually COBOL is still around today. Um, I actually saw an article recently that uh, people who know COBOL are uh, in high demand. So if uh, any of you guys it's are used programmers, it's used in like
0: airline companies. It's very oh, it's used.
2: It's used in. It's used in. Still used in uh, a wide variety of financial transactions. Yeah, there was a. But, but the reason that,
0: it's still used is because you can't rip these things out. And, right and replace right. them for you know six months downtime. They're too uh, they're too critical uh, on a moment to moment, and so that's why it's it's still there. Is it the latest tech? No, but that's basically what we're talking about.
2: So there was this core software, public domain, written in in COBOL. Um, so uh, in in eighty one, the Reagan administration basically puts out, uh, or just before that, they put out a contract. And the, the basic idea is that we need a way of tracking uh, criminal case management,s or criminal case management, at the DOJ and a couple other law enforcement small, minor executive branch law enforcement offices, um, in the U.S. government. Uh, and this was a very very lightly populated field at the time. Not many people um, were involved in such a thing. Um, And so, if you could get in on it, you could stand and make a massive amount of money if you could actually deliver a good product. Uh, so, Bill and Nancy, and Nancy Hamilton were the founders of Insta. They were a married couple. And Bill worked at the NSA for six years. He left the NSA uh, in 1966. What he did there has never been fully disclosed. Um, if I had to uh, guess, I would say that he was probably um, some kind of software engineer or just general computer engineer um, because he was able to make both software and hardware modifications, uh, some very big ones, to the public, the core public domain promise software uh, and its hardware deployment. He bumped it up to 32-bit computers um, pretty, pretty much on his own. Uh, and with some help from his wife, uh, and this is a very, you know, this at the time would have required a great deal of effort and time, um, and, a, and a large amount of intelligence to pull off on your own. Uh, so he, <laughs> yeah, you there know, was no
0: stack overflow back then.
2: Oh yeah, there was there was giant, um, you know, giant manuals, you know, like the size of a five year old, that you had to flip through for instruction sets and and different. Theories and how to perform an operation. It was, uh, you know, you had to have an intense grasp of hardware engineering at the time as well, electrical engineering. Um, but he was able to make several advancements, and they go back to the Justice Department in eighty-one, and Reagan administration loves it, just love it. I mean, it, it's working incredibly well. So by uh, early nineteen eighty-two. INSLA gets awarded with a $9.6 million contract to install the program uh, with these 32-bit computers that they specialized it for, um, or that they built it for, in 20 U.S. attorney offices. And then uh, later on, part of the contract stipulated that then, at at a later point, for more money, which would be negotiated later or whatever, but they would then do 74 offices, So they were basically going to do 94 offices, if not probably close to 100 by everything, by the time everything was done. Um, And that was essentially every single major attorney at the U.S. attorney's offices. Every single one at the time in 1982 was going to get this software uh, and going to get training their staff and their paralegals and their clerks, uh, not their clerks, but uh, younger lawyers who are, are helping them out would also get training and learn how to use this software. Uh, and interestingly, uh, everything seemed to be going fine. Uh, and you know, Hamilton actually gave an interview to um, Consortium News, and he said, uh, you know, we developed it originally just for prosecutors, but some of our users wanted to have it shared with the courts and the police. So, the software was engineered to make it adaptable. And making it highly adaptable, a byproduct was to make it usable for non prosecutor tracking. And that made it adaptable totally outside the criminal justice system. Uh, It became obvious with the latest round of modifications any data system could be integrated into Promise. And those data systems could interact, that is, combine with each other, forming a massive tracking database of people via government documents such as birth and death certificates licenses, mortgages, lawsuits, or anything else kept in the database. Promise could also track banking transactions, arms shipments, communications, airplane parts, again, anything kept in the database. So quickly, uh, the work that he was performing as part of this contract and the constant tinkering that he was doing um, was catching a lot of attention because he was able to basically build an enterprise, very early enterprise application that could search different kinds of databases. They could be integrated with other programs and utilized in a way to aggregate all kinds of data sources together to build um, sort of a a crude network analysis with a great deal of uh, almost object oriented context. With financial data, parts tracking, uh, inventory management, um, you know, uh, person-to-person relationships, and so on. And all of the metadata that they're in, you know, when exactly did these relationships start, when did they end, you know, what, what was entailed in them at this time. All of that could be tracked successfully with the software, you know, as you made these additional advancements in it. So, this seems pretty anodyne. It seems like you know what's really going on here is there's a very smart guy, who used to work at uh, the NSA, who uh, is sort of a uh, sort of a genius, and he decides that he's going to make this software and hardware basically make a hardware software stack, and sell it to the government, and then continue to work on it. Um, so everything is going totally fine. Uh, now. Eventually, I'd kind of out of the blue, the DOJ begins withholding payments in 1983. And their argument was, that the, off the bat, that the product was unsatisfactory. Now, this didn't really comport with uh, what he had been told up to this point, and it didn't comport with the fact that Once he had delivered the initial product, they uh, solidified the rest of the contract to deliver to the 74 other attorneys. All of a sudden, the software is not what they need. It's not what they want. And they have total buyer's remorse. Um, And basically just instead of closing out the contract and moving on, just refuse to stop or or refuse to pay him but continue to utilize the license and continue to utilize the software and the machines that they were built specifically for. Uh, Now, very quickly, uh, InSlot goes into bankruptcy. And then they get sued by the U.S. government on top of that. Uh, I'm sorry. They sued the U.S. government on top of that. And And in order to do that, they hired the pre-watergate yes so this is one of the so this is where we start to get into the network stuff so one of the first interesting persons that shows up in this wide-ranging tale of washington dc politics is elliot richardson now elliot richardson uh worked at the time for a uh law firm called milbank tweed hadley and mccloy uh the International Square building at a Washington, D.C., on uh, I Street. And he um, would actually later on in the 90s, the mid-90s, go on to write a 60-page letter um, uh, to Ken Starr, who was the independent counsel of the Office of Independent Counsel, who was investigating the Clintons. Now, Elliot Richardson, uh, over the course of well over a decade after getting involved in this case and seeing um, how it all fell apart, had continued as a side project almost to collect intelligence on it. Um, And he collected a massive amount of intelligence on the implications, uh, or implicating um, both Bill and Hillary Clinton, uh, Webb-Hubble, Vince Foster, and uh, a couple other characters out of the Little Rock scene, um, namely a, uh, an interesting guy who went by the name of Jackson T. Stevens. Now, Jackson T. Stevens is not a name that most people will know off the top of their head. But Jackson T. Stevens uh, was a billionaire. And he uh, had two sons who are both currently alive and they're both billionaires. Um, they uh, are originally got their start in a mix of finance and oil based at a little rock. And they find, founded a uh, financial services company called Stevens Incorporated. Um, now, it just so happened that Stevens was a personal friend of Jimmy Carter. Um, And it just so happened that Stevens, uh, you know, happened to be a institutional investor in um, some early institutional investor in some very profitable enterprises like Tyson's, Walmart, uh, Worthen Bank, Altel. Um, So this was a guy um, who not much is known about, really, in his early life, but was clearly from the outset politically connected. Uh, so
3: Hans, one of these days we're going to have to talk about relationship between Tyson's chicken and narcotics trafficking, but please go on.
2: Well, yeah, that that that's another episode. But basically, um, Stevens is an interesting guy in that uh, he sort of became a billionaire out of nowhere. Um, he is presumably wealthy, although no one really is sure because there's never been a great history. But please right. continue. So uh, this guy uh, eventually founds a company uh, for seemingly no reason because it is totally outside the wheelhouse of what he's typically made his money in, which is institutional investing, financial services, and oil. He founds a data processing company in 1968 called Systematics, Systematics Incorporated, sorry. Systematics Incorporated um, is peculiar in that no one has ever really been able to figure out what exactly they did.
0: What no, is no, known back back then? I mean, I, I don't know if no, what you mean by that, but data processing was a thing.
2: No, no, you know, no, 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 I mean, I mean, what, computers what contracts? Were no, possibly. no, no. What contracts they had? Okay. Who they actually worked for? What they were actually doing? Um, because it seems as though. That the company laid dormant, uh, and because there's no record uh, of them doing anything until this uh, promise business begins. And suddenly, um, midway through the project, when it's looking like um, uh, Mr. Hamilton is going to get stiffed, uh, there's this offer to have. Um, systematics as well as another company called hadron incorporated uh help out with developing further features on the this new core promise that he's built well you know
3: if it looks like a front and walks like a front maybe it's a front
2: right so um the man who led uh hadron incorporated was a man named earl bryan um He uh, was one of these personal
3: friend of Edwin
2: Meese. Yep, and one of these dipshits that got involved in the uh, Iran Contra scandal. Um, He actually ended up going to jail for a little bit, or at least getting in trouble. Um, I actually tried to figure out what the hell happened to him. Uh, Couldn't find a lot, although uh, he did change the name of Hadron Incorporated in 2002 to Analax Corporation which was then sold to, uh, or bought by prospecta, which is a kind of it services conglomerate based out of uh, Northern Virginia. And, you know, it, it is basically, uh, a way of administering various security and it services to companies based in the beltway. Um, so even after sort of getting in trouble, he was, uh, rewarded later in life for probably being a good spook. Um, but anyways, the, so this this cast of characters starts emerging around Hamilton. We should include um,
3: um, we should include the Zog Point man, uh, Bill Barr as well. who's appointed as a special prosecutor.
2: Oh really? I didn't know that.
3: Yeah, Bill Barr is appointed as a as special special uh, investigation on the Inslaw case, as he had previously done with. With regards to BCCI, and of course, that uh, was you know what he did with Ruby Ridge, and he's of course working for the Trump administration now, or at least he was. Last I checked, I remember the news. And well, uh, so week.
2: was <laughs> he appointed? <laughs> Ed Meach was working for the, for Trump for a little while.
0: Yep. Uh, I wanted to know if you knew if uh, Barr was appointed as special prosecutor uh, before or after he officially left the CIA. Uh,
3: after he officially
2: left the CIA
0: emphasis of the word officially
2: yeah you don't really ever leave the agency um,
3: company man is a company man so i mean that's yeah go, go ahead Hans. There's, okay. i mean this uh, actually for one moment just as a note to the audience uh this is necessarily complicated because I, what we're trying to flesh out here is the fact that and this is to hank's point as well whether i, I think it's up in the air how important the software actually was, though. I think, I mean, very powerful people were interested in this for one reason or another, whether it's the software itself or whether it represented some kind of means to an end, another end. And we'll start, we will talk about the Zionist entity shortly, but I just, the the point is, these are the people who are at the heart of the 1980s uh, deep politics. And some of these people are still around today. And uh, particularly, there's a line of continuity in, in the DOJ uh, involving this up to the Obongo administration. And I will add to we're hitting on a lot of things that really deserve to be focused on in of themselves, but they overlap so much that it's difficult to untangle the web. But I would recommend to people, the network we're describing, by uh, Danny Castle as the octopus. And what I found interesting about that when I first encountered it is I was at the time already familiar with a book by Dan Muldea written in the 1980s uh, called Dark Victory. And that is a book that is about the relationship between MCA and the Reagan administration and MCA's role in the uh, Reagan victory. And for those that don't know, MCA, like everything else in Hollywood, uh, has its very important connections to syndicate and Israeli intelligence. So Dan Moldea referred to MCA in that book as the octopus. And this was in the early 80s. He wrote the book. And I would recommend for people there's a movie that came out in um, the mid-2000s. It was a documentary. Uh, it was called The Last Mogul, and it was about the life of Lou Wasserman, who was, of course, head of MCA. And you'll, if you you go into that with a frame of mind of the things that we're talking about today, you'll start to pick up on some of these interesting connections because— It's difficult to sum up in a few words exactly what the Reagan administration represented, but as best I could do, it is the 80s were a time in which you had a real divorce from reality in American politics. Not that that divorce wasn't already there, but it it got cartoonish at that point because you had an actual actor who was put into the presidency as as an actor by the forces of uh, uh, the Hollywood, the shadowy Hollywood power. And you had the CIA through George Bush running the actual administration. And uh, it, it's just it, to draw a map and to, to name all the names necessary here is just something we're not going to be able to do. But I think that the reason that this is all interesting, as Hans had mentioned, is because when you look at it, th- this for whatever reason, this software in particular and the scandals around it seems to be a Linking thread between all of the most
0: salacious deep politics scandals of that decade. Well, it was a cover-up, and and this tool right. is is sort of broad-reaching, and I think it just kind of uh, steamrolled on upon itself through the activism or uh, willingness of journalists like Danny Castellero to pursue it, and I think uh, for whatever reason, the the story was uh, picked up by some covered up uh, broadly uh, by most, but it, it does touch upon many aspects of the octopus, as he put it, as the deep state we we put it. And I don't think it was uh, something that they were all meeting in the secret lair, kind of like having discussions about this pesky journalist. I just think it just kind of uh, coincidentally happened that this was decided this guy had to go. And uh, it, it just so happened, just like with Gary Webb, that it exposed a lot of how things work because the uh, the quality of work that he was doing
3: Well, we don't really know because Danny, in the case of Danny, though, uh, his there are some you can find on the Internet. Some of the notes and working documents he had have surfaced. But in the case of the crime scene itself, all the papers that he had with him were not present.
2: So I want to keep going on, um, I think, trying to build more connections here so we can. At least make a hypothesis what promise is probably being used for or ported for and then go back towards a little bit of history. Um, But essentially, I think that Jackson Stevens is critical to understanding what's going on because Jackson Stevens, um, in that investment in the Worthing Banking Corporation, eventually became the owner of the, the Worthing Banking Corporation. And. They are notable for uh, one thing in particular in the 1990s, and that was um, large campaign donations to one uh, Bill Clinton out of the state of Arkansas in uh, his 1992 and 1996 presidential elections. Um, Now, Stevens was also peculiar in that he co-owned Uh, along with this uh, group of people known as the Lipo Group, or Lipo Group, Lipo Group, um, uh, the Riotti family, the the American branch of BCCI. Now, BCCI is something that uh, Nick has, and we've brought up repeatedly, and I think we've talked about it before, but we should bring it up again. Uh, It's called, it's the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which is just about as vague and stupid as you can get. Um, And it was at one point one of the, like the top ten largest banks on the planet by uh, by total market cap, and uh, it basically was discovered to be just an incredibly large um, slush fund for money laundering, uh, for narcotics, arms dealers, and probably all kinds of other criminal enterprises around the world. Um, and there, there have been allegations it, it,
0: that it, <coughs> banks like this. Um, were very common in the drug running days of the 80s and it uh, just so happens that Jeb Bush apparently was in charge of one of them i don't remember the name of it but th- this is uh, not uh, undocumented if you if you look it up uh, you'll you'll find threads that connect that name to that activity right
2: um so Stevens uh, he he basically was introduced where he introduced uh, Aga Hassan Abadi, who was an individual who had actually helped build this thing, to um, Burt Lance, who was Carter's director of Office of Management and Budget. Um, And again, this is because Stevens and Carter were uh, allegedly friends from the Navy. Although how these two individuals... uh, somehow met at the Navy, uh, the, the story basically just doesn't hold up. I clearly think clearly something else was going on here. Um, Carter and, and Stevens probably knew each other in another way or from uh, further back. And that was a cover story for uh, a much deeper political connection, um, that I don't think has ever even been touched upon, uh, as far as I know. That's like true deep politics is trying to figure out when exactly these people met and who made sure that they met, and who maintained that relationship between them. Um, this spirals later on into all kinds of stuff with um, uh, the drug, the alleged drug trafficking, Whitewater, all these uh, various purported scandals out of Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, And yes, Bill Barr does show up. A lot of these stupid characters like Hubble and uh, uh, Hillary show up. But what's interesting is that Hillary basically gets mixed up in this mess uh, because she worked at the Rose Law Firm. And the Rose Law Firm represented Systematics Incorporated. Um, What's also interesting is that uh, at the time that this is going on, Uh, that Bill Hamilton is getting fucked um, by the Justice Department and uh, is trying to sue them. And uh, these two corporations, Hadron Incorporated and Systematics Incorporated, are coming in and um, utilizing the software for various modifications and then selling the software to foreign governments. Um, There is a man who's working at the Justice Department by the name of William French Smith, I believe he was Attorney General for a very for a short period of time before Meach, um, and he ended up going to work for um, he, he for a long time. He worked at Gibson Dunn and Crutcher, which is a, a a law firm out of L.A., and they've done a lot of high profile cases over the years. Um, now, what's interesting is that after he left uh, his time in the government, he went back to work for the same law firm as a partner. Um, Now, they were a very, very, very important component of Verizon's legal team for many years and have to this day been a part of the Verizon legal team. Um, They uh, also played a minor role in the Telecommunications Act of 96 and and I think later stuff in 97 um, that kind of feeds into this larger problem that we were seeing and that the government was attempting to – find a way from a regulatory standpoint, at least, to control the flow and spread of uh, telecommunications technology and internet technology because they wanted to be able to make sure that they could keep up if necessary. Um, But anyways, this firm would eventually go on to represent Verizon in many ways. Now, what's interesting is that Verizon um, bought out Altel now, Altel was a uh, telecommunications company that had bought out um, Systematics Incorporated, which, uh, again, Altel was an investment opportunity from Stevens way back in the day, and Systematics Incorporated was his company. Uh, eventually, actually, Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher would go on to help um, Verizon face off and win against the FCC in terms of net neutrality rules and and um, some other regulatory problems. Um, so these networks manifest in various ways over time. Um, and clearly, you know, I think Stevens is dead, I believe that William French Smith is also dead. They've both been dead for a while. But these firms and these cliques of people, even after the people who might set up these early relationships die, uh, will continue working together for various purposes. Mostly because uh, they're accustomed to each other they're part of the same social clique. Uh, they're also basically just part of the upper class in this country. And they help each other out uh, because they have longstanding contractual relationships with each other and uh, various other relationships, if we had to speculate. Um, so as things are starting to get really weird uh, for promise, suddenly... Um, as if things could not go more wrong for the Hamiltons. Uh, a certain someone from a, uh, a Middle Eastern state makes an appearance on the scene. Now, this individual um, was later identified as a Mr. Dr. Ben Orr. O-R-R. Which is, of course, an alias. Right. Right. So Mr. Orr showed up to the Inslaw offices while all of this drama is starting to unfold in, in 1983. And he's asking for a demo. Well, wait a minute. First of all, how do you even know what our software is? Someone's clearly been talking. But Inslaw basically agrees, okay, sure, Well, you know, we'll give you a demo. And he seemed allegedly, according to them, fascinated with it. Now, he claimed to be a public prosecutor from Israel. Uh, Later, this was determined to be false. No one is really sure who this individual really was. Um, But it was the first sign that something was really amiss. And that uh, it was clear now to the Hamiltons, and this is really when they stepped up their legal case, that... Their software, the licenses for their software were being proliferated because they started receiving calls and letters from Ireland, from multiple states in Europe, from multiple state governments, from various legal offices asking about this software, asking about demos, asking about various aspects of it, never asking about licenses, asking all kinds of other questions. They realize that the feds not only have refused to stop paying, but have done something to the software and are now either selling it or distributing it illegally. Uh, this Israeli connection is even more bizarre because why exactly uh, when you have all of these other elements at play, you have clearly the uh, sort of the Reagan money elite working actively to utilize this software for what we can probably assume was a mix of arms trafficking and drug smuggling, uh, operational control. Why exactly are there Israelis becoming involved in the equation? And of course that
3: the profits from that that are put to that are laundered through places like the BCCI.
2: Right Now there was another person who was seen interacting with Inslaw. That was a Mr. Rafael Etienne. And we know who he was. He was not using an alias because he was the chief of the Israeli Defense Force's Anti-Terrorism Intelligence Unit in the 80s.
3: Basically the Mossad's
2: signet. Yes. So now Inslaw is being uh, – as they're actively having problems with the Justice Department, they are being repeatedly approached. For intelligence on their software, by Mossad. At the very least, the Israeli government. At the worst, this is just Mossad. Uh, now we should also introduce
3: the character, uh, the shady Israeli character who was in, is an American citizen, or probably dual citizen, a um, uh, Michael. Uh, how do you? Reconchito.
0: Well, yes. you know, that name, I mean, he's supposed to be Israeli-American. It's Italian name, but it sounds like reconnaissance. So I'm wondering if that's like a male yeah. name. Re- we kind of well, no, no,
2: he's Re- a real person. He's a real person. Well, so he is a real he's person.
3: Real, and he shows up. He was one of the primary sources for Danny Castellaro. Right. And he eventually found his way into prison in the Pacific Northwest for some kind of drug charge. And yeah, which he, he also claimed to be, well, yeah, I mean, there's many such cases. Right. That's what happened to Barry Seal. He, he claims that uh, he was also involved in the negotiations around the so-called October Surprise. Now, he also claims that he was responsible for modifying the soft, he was a programmer, in addition to being a spook, and that he did this at that Indian reservation, the Cabazon Indian Reservation. And as I had mentioned earlier, this was a place where The syndicate and the spooks were basically just running wild. And there was, in fact, a triple homicide that occurred there in, I believe, 1981 of one of the I think he was basically the tribal uh, chief who was one of the three killed uh, because he became suspicious about what was going on with the casino, et cetera. And there, there were some specific reasons for the killing of this man, but. There was other weird stuff going on here involving alleged weapons testing, including bioweapons. But this is what unites the—you uh, know—this is the transcontinental connection. So, yeah, something going on in this bizarre Southern California Indian reservation um, that somehow ties into all of this, and this is, it keeps popping up. And, and different people who are looking at this independently came upon this place and trying to figure out what was happening.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, he he also, I think, uh, did some kind of very important Italian-to-English translation book that's still partially in use. Um, he was a, sort of a, a savant of some kind that was being employed by Wackenhut. And Wackenhut was this... Uh, it's a spook... Company. I don't know how else to describe it. 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 It's a
3: it's a shell company.
2: It's a shell company. I should add too that that that
3: triple homicide that took place, it was committed by a syndicate affiliated hitman who is an ex army ranger who, after committing the murders, uh, went to Central America, and set up some kind of weird ministries or something, where he was running different operations there. I, I it's you know this is typical type spook shit
2: right and interestingly there was another uh, you know now that we're talking about the, the Israeli involvement um, later on it would be determined in the court of in the federal court documents and uh, the original case and uh, the lower court that was settled that the F that the DOJ did in fact commit fraudulent behavior um, they seem to have a timeline where they finger the Justice Department's uh, f- uh, direct use or direct fraudulent behavior coming directly after the visit of this Etienne character from Mossad to Insla. So this visit and the demo and the intelligence that he gathered on what Insla was capable of, I'm sorry, what the promise software that Insla had developed was capable of, and probably what he knew that the people at Insla didn't know, which was the modifications being made by this man from uh, Wacken Hut, by other people from Wackenhut, Hut, from uh, Systematics Incorporated and from Hadron Incorporated, uh, he if all of that correlated together. He probably had a good idea of what the capabilities of this software was, and what the capabilities of it could be for uh, Israeli intelligence gathering.
3: Yeah, I have a question on this. So there's a, this is on the software side. So what I've and I've seen other Mossad agents of various sorts discuss this, and I you know you don't know, I mean, you're listening to the hook nose. It's difficult to know what to believe. but it has been alleged that they use the software to track PLO dissidents. At the same time, some of these people have stated that their purpose and interest in the software was to sell to their neighbors for the back doors, presumably, I guess, to the Jordanians and to Lebanon.
2: Right, that, and we we know believable. that we know yeah. that this promise software showed up in multiple foreign governments, and it showed up in multiple state governments uh, as well. I believe that New Jersey is still using it for some reason. The, the Israelis um, do
0: this a lot. They, they create a they have a, a very competitive, uh, you could argue, um, security systems sector in their uh, industry uh, in their economy, and basically it's uh, companies like uh, Amdal, which is. Not necessarily a security company, but they have back office stuff that gives the Israelis access to a lot of uh, telephone records and things like that. And this has been going on for some time. Uh, James Banford has researched this quite quite thoroughly, so you can look uh, up more of uh, details on that from him. I would recommend. But it's it's not an isolated incident. There's there's been a lot of this stuff going on. Yeah,
2: and there were there were several attempts, by the way, uh, of from uh, from Hadron. Which is this um, this Brian character um, to buy out Inslaw? Because once the lawsuit started, they realized that, um, and once, once Elliot Richardson got involved, they realized they had a serious they might have a serious problem. And then when the, one of the lower courts ruled in their favor, um, it became a very serious problem because then that meant that they had to pull political strings to get it ki- killed and killed in the court of appeals. Um, They had to eventually get them on a technicality. Um, So let
3: let me ask you this then, Hans, because this is this is where I was trying to go with this. To what extent? Because much of the literature that I've seen around this over the years of it, the implication is that the United States government is trying to, you know, put one over on their allies, basically in the Anglosphere. It was the Canadian government that received this as well as the Australian government. And it is, and of course the Zionist state. And my question is whether or not the real purpose here is not to find out, you know, not to get into the Canadians and the Australian systems, because honestly, who gives a shit? Is it, is there a way that this, the, the way that this all plays out, could it be that the purpose behind much of this and much of the smoke and mirrors and the confusion is Israeli intelligence access to the
2: United States systems? I think that might be part of it, but I, if I had to speculate on what's really going on here, I think that just given um, networking technology at the time, computer networking, it would have been excessively difficult for them to you know, uh, gather data in an active basis. Well, this is what my
0: question was earlier. Thinking. It's like, how I does know, this even so work? Let
2: me, let me explain. Let me explain to get you could not do it in real time there were no rest apis then there was there was nothing like that it would have been very difficult to extract data to decrypt it in a timely fashion you would have to probably actually walk in physically to the machine you know break into the facility yeah, gather if, if that's off the case the it. best
0: way to get access to it would be to set up a a maintenance contract with all the right, uh, users right, of this right. and then basically go and, in there you with your tech your lab tech and then he would get basically a copy of all your records
2: Right. And so, by the way, a lot of the documents um, that in that the DOJ has and the FBI also has on this were sealed. Um, they were never released to uh, to I believe uh, to Richardson, who was suing on behalf of the Inslaw Corporation, because the the government basically waited until the last day where they would have had to actually hand that stuff over for one of their judges to overturn the case on a technicality and then the whole thing was killed and uh, put out to dry or put put out to pasture um so we don't really know exactly was there a maintenance contract what else what other technology was installed with these machines and this software no one's first no one knows that has never been fully leaked um, it's not clear how that was being done but i suspect that a large part of this had nothing to do with spying, um, and it might have had much, much more to do with um, two things. One, we know for a fact that the American government and the Israeli government were not the only governments who had a vested interest in um, proliferating illegal arms trafficking illegal drug trafficking, various illegal or extra legal activities, or keeping an eye on certain people that, um, w- without using warrants. There, there's a hundred purposes that basically uh, involve something illegal in one way or another that governments might want to have. So I think that what this was really about was giving various uh, aligned states, if you will, the ability to manage and control rather than root out their criminal networks and manage and control people within the country that they felt they needed to manage and control. It might be some kind of threat or competitor to the state government. Well, and then that would be the interests of the CIA and having the
3: back door because then you could absorb the networks.
2: right. And so I don't know from a technological standpoint, I don't know if that was always the intention. I think that what this is really about was they, they realized um, what they had. And then, you know, after some additional modifications and um, additional financing ventures, even like Allen Company gets involved in this at one point, financing some of this stuff. Um, Allen Company or Allen Co. Um, I think the listeners should look that up. It's an incredibly shady and weird investment outfit. It's been around. They, for they have a,
0: a big shindig in Sun Valley, Idaho, I believe. Right, with a lot they, of the uh, media uh, types yeah. coming uh, in attendance, and they recently they're notoriously the they're
2: notoriously private about their clients. They're they're very um, they're notorious for being very secretive um, investment bankers. Um, but anyways, they they're, they get involved in financing part of this whole thing and. Um, It becomes very clear, I think, that there was a ton of money being poured into it, and uh, it was a great piece of technology that Hamilton had wrote and that multiple people had added on to. And they were going around the world and pitching this to state government – foreign governments um, because I think that one of the things that we learned throughout the 80s and the 90s is that majority of the large-scale organized crime we see in the world is permitted and allowed to happen. And if it is happening, you can guarantee, if it's on a large enough scale, that the government is in on it. And that more than likely what this was about was a way of actually, instead of rooting out this criminal activity, was managing it. Finding a way to manage your drug trafficking. Finding software that could do that for you. And by the way, the same software could also be used to track legal cases against your drug traffickers. How you might... Be able to apply pressure in certain locations to uh, relieve the cases against your drug traffickers. I think that was much more what this was about, and I think that the Israelis were involved and interested in this. Uh, and there, there's a hundred other connections we could spend time going down, and you know maybe we can in another episode. But you know, Robert Maxwell and and um, Jeffrey Epstein are tangentially related to this. There are multiple people.
3: And, uh, Carlucci or Car- Carlucci, the, the, Car- the Carlisle group guy.
2: Yep. Yep. There's, there's, there's Richard Armitage. There's a hundred connections to this, um, this whole scandal. And I think that be- because if I had to speculate what this was really about, it was approaching foreign governments and saying, you want to manage your criminal underworld. You want to manage these various activities. You want to track these people well, we have the solution for you, and I think that a lot of this stuff about you know Israeli and American spying and, and uh, intelligence gathering was probably overblown, if not some kind of cover for what this was really. About. That is,
3: that is intelligence work.
2: <laughs> right. I, I think that this was this was not this was not about backdooring governments around the world. This was more about going to governments around the world and setting up a sort of global harmonized
1: means of managing criminal activity. Well, let me give a counterpoint to that. I mean, part of the part of the goal in setting up these sorts of networks as purely extra governmental bodies at least on paper is to avoid legibility. You don't actually want a database with a ledger of uh this is exactly how much we owe this particular gangster like this is the list of favors etc etc i mean that would seem to defeat the entire purpose i i mean a lot of this uh, like i keep coming back to the technical issues here and i Like this is why I suspect that maybe there's just a whole nother half of the story that we're not observing that perhaps like, I mean, it's totally possible that this was, uh, I mean, I can throw out a few hypotheses, notably the couple that, uh, this was kind of the, this was the era where there, it was the first big gold mine of, uh, like actual software revenue and that it was something about purely channeling that money flow because the great thing and the thing that actually makes it really easy to launder money uh, through things like software as a service companies is that your marginal cost is zero. So somebody writes you a check, you don't actually do anything. All they're, all they're doing is paying you for the legal rights yeah, it's just to a run day. your software. Your your costs incurred in serving an additional customer are nothing. You know, maybe you have to rent another AWS instance, but that's about it. So it it's becomes kind of very but why the
0: ongoing lawsuit then from Inslaw? I mean, it seems like they want to get paid.
1: Yeah, I mean they want to get paid. I mean, who knows? Like, if you have some uh, like hypothetically, you have somebody who shows up selling some product so it's pirated like you know, you might not do due diligence, especially right. at the time if you're some random government. It's like, okay, does this salesman like legally have the rights to license this technology? Like right. that, the idea of like whether software could even be copyrighted was a little bit unclear in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's one hypothesis, that it was like some sort of a pure money play. The other hypothesis is that Like it could be just, you know, an intelligence investment in if you digitize any of these files and you have even theoretically the ability to at some point get access to the big enchilada, like, you know, maybe it takes you like you have to physically infiltrate a guy. Maybe you have to have an agent in there, but. You know regardless just even the possibility once you have this stuff digital it's a lot easier to exfiltrate than having to get some guy into the you know the secret archives with a micro camera stuck in his hat or whatever it's a lot easier if you can get somebody to you know wire up a uh, telephone connection where there shouldn't be one or you know any any of the any of the ways that it becomes dramatically easier to exfiltrate data once it's uh, digitized, and you know that doesn't necessarily require that it be uh, like kind of continuously exploited. Like Adam said, there's not a live internet connection. These things like a lot of them probably aren't even networked. So, I mean that's that's another hypothesis that somebody was willing to invest heavily. Just in like, please get all of your stuff digitized because we want to be able to at some point exploit that in the future via some mechanism yet to be determined. And here's like a lot of money to make that happen. I mean, those are the two that kind of come to mind. They're not particularly like nefarious, but you can see it in both of those instances why people would want to attach themselves to that effort because in both cases, you have a lot of black money flowing around to make it happen that you can take a cut of.
3: Don't you, to that point, Hank, uh, back in the 80s, uh, presumably it would have been a lot easier to bamboozle you know, uh, various states with respect to software with technology because this isn't something that was well understood i mean oh yeah if if you want a great um stuff
1: uh look up on youtube uh the the greatest uh demo in the history of the world or something like that it's this um it's a it's a demo from like 1968 um from xerox uh,
0: so the UI, uh, he, the
1: GUI. Yeah, it uh, it's but it's got so much more than that. Like it, like he uses the mouse in like 1968 to like have this GUI where he uh, interacts with this database and like plays a game. It's it's a really good demo, but like in the in the 80s, it's not uh it's not exactly clear. Like if somebody does like a whole like demo where um as uh, they sometimes call it um where it like uh. You put out a fantastic demo, and then you're uh, you get the contract, and then you figure out how to actually make the thing work. Because literally, the demo is the only thing that works. Uh, I mean, that that is still a viable business model. But in the 80s, my God, uh, if you could hack together that, then like, assuming that they are willing to pay you money for software at all, then I could imagine that being a pretty pretty easy con to pull off. I mean, like these these technical issues. Like you'd you'd need almost somebody who was there on one side or the other of one of these transactions to be like, what the fuck was going on? Because it would be easy to infer. Like if if the pitch was, okay, the United States government has an interest, uh, you know, maybe coincident with the Israeli government to make sure that every country has all their stuff digital because that's where the kind of soft battlefield is. That's what we can exploit, whatever. Then you would expect to see things like, you know, if I'm the Irish purchasing agent for software for the, you know, Irish security services. I would expect that that guy gets like a suitcase full of cocaine or like you know some sort of payoff or god only knows what to you know just kind of grease the skids and make sure that he has every incentive in the world to do that maybe they're giving it away for free like maybe that's just sufficient although that is a little bit suspicious in and of itself but who knows like that's what you would expect with that pattern. If it's a money play, then you would expect to see the opposite. You would expect to see somebody negotiating that, like you know, this is a fantastic demo and this will transform your organization's ability to deliver value added to your whatever. And like you know, we we demand like reasonable payoff for our efforts. But those would be kind of the two uh, the two poles of this for those two uh, hypotheses and i'm sure that we can construct other hypotheses but i've like never seen at the time like you can go back and like uh like look at um you know ye old war stories of the pr- first people to buy like oracle databases or to just kind of go whole hog and microsoft shop or we we all bought uh, Max or whatever, but there's there's none of this as you would expect, kind of unfortunately for uh, this uh, this kind of case management software.
0: One of the interesting aspects of this um, article that Hans was mentioning, talking about the octopus, was the mention of the database that lists uh, list the dissidents uh, at the time. And apparently Oliver North was in charge of creating some of this um, in the eighties. Are you talking about main core? Yes. Yes.
3: Yeah. So main, and this this ties main, into the Rex eighty four, which i have seen when he's been around sort of conspiracy recent revisionist type stuff, has probably seen the uh, test the congressional testimonies re- regarding the continuity of government program. Which I believe was in the mid-80s that this was happening.
2: Yeah, so in 82, Reagan, the Reagan administration put out this special contract for the creation of some kind of criminal database or criminal record system. Um, But that has been, over the years, various leakers and various former uh, intelligence officers and uh, engineers for various parts of this government have come out and basically described uh something that they consistently refer to as main core um and or describe it in language that it's obvious what they're that they're referring to the same thing um although there's never been any official uh uh, acknowledgement or official documentation that ever leaked proving the existence of main core um i think that more than it at this point, it stands to reason that something like that exists, and uh, yeah, it, what it is is the domestic application of the lessons
3: learned from the Phoenix program,
2: right? And, and, I, and I think that I, I think that what is really going on here is that during the um, during the the uh, Snowden scandal, there was a, a certain technology that he leaked information about that I think didn't receive a lot of play. Which I thought was always uh, curious because it seemed like the most pinnacle piece of this whole puzzle, which was this X Keyscore uh, program that the NSA had developed, I think, in concert with uh, Booz Allen Hamilton. And basically, X Keyscore was a um, a big data searching application and query application and aggregation application. Um, developed by the NSA with various enhanced tool sets for kind of picking up and recognizing the different kinds of data that they had recorded, video data, uh, image data, call records, calls themselves, all kind, all, every single piece of information and how it all correlated together um, and how you wanted to actually utilize it um, could be done with this particular program because the NSA... had at one point realized that, well, now we have all this data, we have no great way of interacting with it. So they built this very, very powerful enterprise application to do so. And I think that um, what it seems like is that the product that Inslaw developed was being utilized in some way um, uh, and being augmented in some way to track dozens upon dozens of different kinds of data from all kinds of sources, um, but the 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 single uh, uh, body within the United States that could gather all that data together, that had the legal right to do so, would have been the federal government. And I think that promise um, was maybe being morphed into a proto X key score, and it would have been a way to interact with this lo- you know burgeoning growth in. Um, disparate data that the government had begun collecting and digitizing. And then this pattern seems to repeat itself and then each time they hit a new kind of scale um, with a new set of uh, potential data sources Um, and more complexity in in the, the mediums in which those data sources arrive to develop some kind of application internally to actually interact with all that data and develop intelligence insights from it. Um, And I think that main core more than likely exists in some form the way that, you know, just given what we know about the US government now, I would have to believe that something like that does in fact exist. And uh, if, if it's used for a Phoenix program style crackdown or if it's used for something more sinister like blackmail, um, I'm not really sure, but it seems as though that the U.S. government has been they, they've been attempting to solve this problem for you know at least three decades, if not almost four now. In that, how do we collect large amounts of disparate data on our citizenry, and how do we actually utilize that data in an effective way, maybe at, at, ostensibly to solve law enforcement cases, but yeah, further on, <laughs> further further down the line to gain intelligence insights into the citizenry
0: yeah that's the pitch i mean back in the day it was it was a list of eight million people or so and this article alleges that some have uh, speculated that it has in the high triple digits uh millions so that would be over 100 million perhaps uh and what what are they going to do with that list i mean realistically it becomes sort of uh not very useful once it gets so large but it does give you a sense that the government has, at least in its back pocket, the, the option if, if the situation called for it to round people up. Uh, and to put that into more legally precise terms, uh, the NDAA Act in 2011 was signed by Barack Obama, uh, which does allow the government to hold Brown. people indefinitely.
3: Um,
0: Bro, we're all getting
3: being the- rendered, bro. We're getting rendered, bro.
0: <laughs> Time will tell. Time will tell. But these are just these are just clues that, that give you the scene as possible.
3: get you guys take um just generally since Hans brought it up, oh, let's just have a brief little discussion here about the Snowden incident. I wanna get a feel for where you guys what you guys think was happening there.
2: Uh, the CIA, for whatever reason, felt it necessary to yeah. publicly trash the NSA and uh, Bruce Allen Hamilton. That's one of my theories as well. I mean, the guy worked for the CIA. Snowden Alan
3: has Hamilton a, is is the CIA though.
2: Well, well, Snowden literally has a fucking book deal now and has a blue check mark on Twitter. I mean, yeah, um, I know that. Like, Danny, Danny Casolaro had his his wrist slit. And Gary Webb yes. got what shot in the head and twice, and this, the, twice. And the Inslaw, the Inslaw couple have literally been bankrupted and robbed of their life savings in this on this never-ending legal battle. But this fucking guy gets a book deal and a blue check mark. I mean, yeah, and he it's gets very obvious. By... It's very obvious who who is actually you know going to be punished for doing something that the spooks don't like and who is probably a spook themselves at this it's, point.
3: It's well known yeah, the CIA well, does not like the NSA. Is that a As a I mean, general principle, always be wary of the idea of, of CIA whistleblowers or <laughs> intelligence whistleblowers.
2: Who, and I have no mean, idea why they, they felt it necessary to uh, you know, disclose this kind of information other than the whole point... Revelation was, of the method. Yeah, like, the whole that, point that's, was, that's, that's was probably suspicion. to to correspond with things like what Adam was talking about, the the uh, the NCAA. And um, DAA. Oh, I'm sorry. Not,
3: yeah, not the basketball
0: group.
2: Well, yeah, but also, <laughs> I mean, <laughs>
0: which I know Matt, very the thing little
3: is, about. Is like, like, of course. Th- this is the thing observed at the time by a lot of people who had been paying attention to it, which is that there was very little. I mean, yes, there's a specific program or software that, that there's some information information that exists now about. I don't know what to make of that. But what I can tell you is that very little about that was said to have been revealed by Snowden had not already been discussed by people like James Bamford for years prior. Well there yeah, that's right there there was there's very little that was entirely novel or unique about that. And my suspicion is just that mass surveillance as a tool of political suppression, is far more effective when people understand
0: right. that it's that's what's happening. I'll, I'll add uh, support to what you're saying, Nick, because I remember, with before I even sort of met, uh, you know, guys guys like us around the election, you know, of Trump. Um, I just remember casually reading a, a Wired magazine in like 2000. I, don't, I couldn't give you the exact date, but it was certainly before the Snowden revelations, which I think were 2013. And it was basically talking about this massive data center the NSA was building in Utah to do exactly what Snowden ended up coming out and quote-unquote revealing. And if you look back and basically say all the clues were there, all the evidence was there, but what the difference is is the media sensationalism of this guy. And Katie Couric going to Russia to interview him. I mean... We know yeah. we'll go, CIA Adam, let's let's has talk so about that specifically embedding in the media today. You know, they're they're not it, gonna it, do something like this unless there's orga- organized attempts at it. Hey, they made a Hollywood film about
3: this barely two or three years later. And I, I think it was Oliver Stone who did it, who's um, Yeah, it was. It's a, a suspicious um, individual of himself. I mean, whenever you see films made about things that happen, like this has been a trend lately. You see it with uh, they did one like on the the Boston bombing and th- these kinds of things.
2: Oh, my I God, mean, that movie was so bad. I can't
3: even I, I didn't
2: so
0: I didn't see
3: it. it but not only that, the but there was an entire theatrical element to when this played out in the in the. First place when it actually happened, you had this story about his like ballerina, his you know gorgeous, total dying ballerina girlfriend. He's like living in Hawaii, and he just is so motivated by truth and justice, you know, and and center left politics or some shit that he's gonna like burn his entire life down and flee to Russia because my truth. And with this when you watch like the the Glenn whatever name is up. Uh, Poitras was her last name. I forget Laura. 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 Laura Poitras. Laura, Laura Poitras. Yeah. yeah. If you watch that when they first did that when they went to, I don't think that was that. that was, I believe, in uh, like Hong Kong or something that he was at initially. He, he went to yeah, China. Was, right. It was, it, was it was Hong Kong. It's Hong Kong. Yeah. Okay. It was. It was Hong Kong. So they do that really like like BBC style over-the-top melodramatic introduction to it all. They have, like, it, just the whole way that that shot, it's just right in line with the typical, uh, you know, social engineering-type documentaries. And they have this elaborate story about this Rubik's Cube. They have to meet him in this hotel, and he'll be there with, like, a Rubik's Cube and all this bullshit. And keep in mind that Greenwald and Poitras were working for the uh, billionaire uh, Pierre Omidyar. Who is, you know, a player now. And it's it's they, none they of weren't this, at the time. They weren't at you're right. I'm sorry. You're you're right. They, that that was their that was before the intercept existed, but that's what followed shortly after. Yes, my mistake. But my point is that there was a whole theatrical Hollywood element to how this whole story unfolded when you know there's
1: right. a lot because more they, what do you do if you're I mean, to be fair, that's also what you do if you're attempting to seek publicity for uh, your allegations and you're cooperating with a media organization that understands that, how to put that on. Like the, uh, there was a consortium of uh, news organizations, quote unquote, uh, led by the Guardian, as I recall, but also encompassing like New York Times and like a bunch of yeah, other it people. Yeah, it was the Guardian, I
3: think, which just worked for. Yeah,
1: the Guardian was the uh, was the sort of uh, ringleader of that. But there were a lot that uh, kind of you know had their very filtered uh, view into the the quote unquote Snowden files. And there were, to be fair, uh, specific novel technical revelations in there that caused specific people and organizations to behave in a completely different way. Like the, revolution, no, I, the revelations yeah. about like the shit that they were doing between Google data centers actually caused like major internal turmoil. It caused, uh, you know, it caused changes in the way that they handle their internal systems. Which I understand people have speculated that this, the
3: purpose of this, what we're seeing is a power struggle amongst the deep state.
1: Yeah. I mean that's plausible and you know I I would almost say that that would be the case even if Snowden wasn't actually aligned per se with uh any particular faction because of course the second stage is to exploit these revelations for that sort of ongoing power struggle. Like nothing also- nothing ends up being immune from that regardless of you know what the kind of uh, inciting moment was, or the inciting motivation.
3: I, I can't also help but mention just that name, man,
1: Snowden. Like, really? And and the biography, like, really?
3: if, if like you if Snowden? You
1: through like the, the supposed biography, uh, it it's a uh, astonishingly wholesome biography. Uh, it's, uh, I, I, I don't know what to make of the whole affair. Um, I mean, it seems to be generally agreed upon that like the guy is alive and well and living in Russia, which like, if it was purely a interfactional, uh, struggle, like I, I, I don't see how, like, the GRU wouldn't end up somehow sussing that out, given the shitty state of American counterintelligence. Yeah, but why would
0: they tell us that if, if they did? I don't know. Like
1: the, the whole thing, like the I I don't think that it's as as pat as like you know he was inserted by the CIA into the NSA to like cause a shitstorm and then like. Fled to random other countries. I, that that seems like very uh, contrary to the the mo. I mean, like you can you can also kind of moderate the claim and make it more plausible that like okay, not literally like working for the CIA, but like selected because he had a certain set of ideals and placed in a position where he would inevitably do damage. Like that, that's another plausible story. I, I don't know. I don't really have a dog in the fight.
0: Well, regarding Russia, I mean, they're more than happy just to use him as sort of a, not a puppet, but sort of a showpiece for American
1: corruption and
0: um, nefariousness. You know, regardless
1: of the story, he's an excellent showpiece for that. Yeah, well, like if, it, if it's an interfactional thing, like or just somebody who is fed up with the corruption, I mean, either one of those is pretty damning.
0: I mean, Putin, for God's sakes, literally did like an AMA live AMA with uh, with Snowden. Snowden was on like this big screen, and Putin was sitting on stage, and they're answering questions from the Russian people. Of course, they're filtered, of course. But and Oliver um,
3: Stone was the same man who made the film was the one who was able to get the in depth interview with Putin. What does it all mean?
1: How do we put together these? Well, what did
0: what did George Carlin say? The world is run by a club, and you're not in it. I think that's what it means.
2: Yeah, I think that the biggest takeaway that you we can get from uh, particularly the promise debacle and some of the Snowden stuff is that uh, these these networks persist for several decades at a time and um, the vast majority of their work is pretty anodyne and it seems um, you know you can you can chalk it up to good old boys network it's what most people do or just oh it's just the rich helping each other out but it Upon closer inspection, it seems that through these sort of uh, trial-by-fire incidents, um, where often people end up dying for various reasons or another, over a very short period of time, many people will get whacked and die mysteriously. Um, This forges some kind of closer bond, or this forges closer ties between various entities and people, um, in government, in um, the legal profession, in uh, government contracting, um, in sort of the billionaire scene, and the money man scene. Um, they all seem to come together to solve problems. Um, so it's interesting, you know, maybe in 10, 20 years time, for whatever reason, aspects of the, uh, you know, the, the promise case will be unsealed and will have all of the intelligence that was withheld from public record for many years and even withheld from Congress at one point when they investigated it. Um, and maybe we'll piece it all together, but it'll be too late. You know, that that's part of the problem with it now. It's interesting yeah, to talk about, it's interesting to analyze, but this all happened well over thirty years ago, almost forty years ago at this point. So That's right, you why know, the, the problems that have to be solved are us and our right. corollaries in other countries. <laughs> So my 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 advice to listeners would be to do your network analysis. A lot of what I figured out about Stevens was kind of disparate in different places and I had to pick it up. It was not in not in any of the major pieces covering Insla or this whole debacle or talked about that. I had to pick it up from multiple sources and kind of piece it together. And that's just one person with a couple companies there's thousands of cases like that and I think that you'll find that you might be able to discover patterns or trends before major incidents happen before people start dropping dead and you might be able to develop a knack for it and maybe one day you'll be able to see these things as they unfold and uh, you know maybe you can yeah, make, you, you can know make it, you can make a dollar off of it or you can keep yourself safe but just be aware that These people will continue to operate, and uh, there's nothing that's really going to prevent them from operating at the level which they do. So just hope that you don't wind up like Casillero, or you don't wind up like Vince Foster and get mixed up in the wrong business. You're only in my head. We have to remember that.